Canem Rinse Podcast. This is Volume 9, Issue 428, The World Ends With You. Joining me, Leah Haydu, and Issue 428 are Brian Edwards. Hello, hello everybody. Um, I'm currently wearing uh, a branding of clothes that is not popular in my own neighborhood, so I can only really do about 50% damage during this podcast. It's unfortunate. And Joshua Garrity. My bravery wasn't high enough, so I'm just wearing beige clothes today. <laughs> I do appreciate that when when your bravery is high enough, as we will get into, this is a very important stat, but um, if your bravery is high enough, then you can just wear whatever. You can wear mini skirts. You can wear... Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, got, um, I, I got a pair of uh, what I can only assume are chaps um, because it was, I, I think it was called bondage half pants. Um, <laughs> so, I, I mean, I... As you can only get so much detail out of the pixel art, but um, I, I, I have a, a headcanon for what was going on there. Your imagination um, <laughs> filled in the gaps. Or... It did, as, as it so often does. <laughs> uh, this is going to be a fun show. Yeah. Uh, so we are, uh, as I mentioned, covering uh, The World Ends With You, which is a... Uh, Started out as a DS game, has recently, uh, about two years ago, gotten a uh, port to the Switch, uh, which I think I, I think that all of us have at least touched the Switch port. Yeah. Um, if, if not, I if not played the entire thing through. Um, and there are some notable differences that we will get into uh, as we go along. Uh, and there have also been a couple of other uh, versions on the iOS and Android platforms. Um, not going to talk as much about those because I don't think that anybody has played them here. Um, but those were all based off of the DS version, which came out in 2008. So uh, The World Ends With You is a little bit of a niche game. So uh, if you haven't heard of it, I, I'm not entirely surprised. Uh, it wasn't hugely promoted like um, like the uh, the Final Fantasies or the Dragon Quests uh, that, that you might be a little bit more familiar with. But it is an action RPG. Um, it, I, I will say that it is a JRPG, not because of the battle style, but because of uh, the fact that it is very Japanese in tone. Um, it is set in Shibuya, which is a district of Tokyo in Japan. Uh, and you do fight battles in um, kind of a separate area, you, you, but you don't encounter them randomly. So you uh, have an ability called scanning, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more in, in detail about some of the mechanics. But uh, what that amounts to is you can see the enemies on your screen and choose, uh, for the most part, uh, with some exceptions, when you're going to fight and, and where you're going to fight. Uh, no turn-based strategies here. It is all real-time. Uh, and in the DS version, at least, it is uh, controlled primarily with the touchscreen. There are also mechanics that use the D-pad 
Uh, and uh, actually, most of the time, you're going to be uh, best served by using both at the same time. Uh, for the Switch port, there are a couple of different control schemes. There is, uh, if you are playing in handheld mode, there is something sort of similar to the original touch controls, uh, although, of course, there are not two screens there, so uh, not, not exactly the same, but closer to the original than uh, using motion controls with your... Um, Joy Cons. <laughs> I wanted to say Wiimotes, and that is not it. I'm. Uh, yeah. Oh, I love the idea of two Wiimotes on the end of the Switch. That. Oh, never mind. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, listen. If I could have played it with the Wiimote uh, and a Motion Plus, maybe maybe that would have improved some of my issues with the uh, with the motion controls. But uh, I guess we'll never know. Sadly. Um, but yes, you can uh, you can play not with your Wiimote, unfortunately, but with your Joy Cons uh, on the switch port um you can't use the pro controller which was disappointing to me and i understand why they did that uh but uh most of my switch games i i play with a pro controller when i'm given the option because i don't love the wii uh i'm sorry the switch's motion controls uh but separate issue uh that we'll probably talk about in several separate issues um the publisher of the game is square enix uh in the uh for the remaster or the uh the uh, remix version uh nintendo of america published it it is with switch exclusive uh as of now i don't believe that there are any plans for it to come to any other consoles uh, i would be pretty surprised in fact if they did um developed by a uh, jupiter corporation and square enix uh the music there's a lot of music in this game, um, and if you are interested, uh, there are some pretty good YouTube playlists. Um, hopefully, I, I have I have suggestions for Jay, so hopefully he will use some <laughs> of that in the uh, the intro and outro of the show. And if any of that strikes a chord with you, then you can uh, take to YouTube, uh, see if uh, see if any of those playlists uh, really hit you up, and. Um, you can uh, look up some of the additional musicians who were involved in this, but there are a lot. Um, notably, uh, the credited composer for the game is Takahiro Ishimoto. Um, some of the uh, vocals and some of the um, the the actual lyrics uh, for some of the songs that uh, that take up large parts of the soundtrack. Uh, Chris Ito, Sawa Wakako, uh, those are two different people, uh, stage names, I presume, and Makiko Noda. Um, most of the music carries over between the DS original and the Switch port. Um, there are a few remixes of things, but it's largely the same uh, tunes, just with uh, slightly different arrangements. Um, the director is Tatsuya Kondo, who did programming on Final Fantasy VIII and all of the Kingdom Hearts. I have that written in caps on our show notes. All of the Kingdom Hearts he did art for. Uh, so if you take a look at some of the art for this game, you can really see that influence. Um, from his credits on Moby Games, he uh, this is his only uh, the only game that he is credited with directing, uh, but he has plenty of experience in the genre uh, in in some differing roles as well. And uh, the lead character art designer again, there's a lot of people involved, uh, as is the way with many larger Japanese studios with the art. But um, the lead character art designer uh, is Gen Kobayashi, who uh, is credited with a lot of Final Fantasy and Kingdom Hearts art. So again, you can see that that influence. Um, I was going to say seeping in, but that's not really it because it's not seeping. It is just kind of everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, Splattered it's, uh, with the influence. yeah, yeah. That's that's probably a better uh, a better word for it. Um, 
game was released for the DS uh, April 18th in the UK and April 22nd in the US, so a couple days later in 2008. The uh, ports that I mentioned on iOS and Android came out in August 2012 and June 2014, respectively. And then the Switch port uh, had a worldwide, worldwide release on October 12, 2018. A um, little bit about the development. This is a quote from Wikipedia. The World Ends With You was developed by the same team that created the Kingdom Hearts series with input from Jupiter, the company that developed Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories, which is, uh, well, it's originally a DS title. Um, I, it's gotten ports. All of the Kingdom Hearts titles have gotten ports by this point. They're, they're, they are also kind of splattered everywhere. <laughs> uh, the, the development of the game started two and a half years before its Japanese release during the development of Kingdom Hearts 2 and the end of development of Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories. At that time, Nintendo had announced the DS, but it was not yet on the market. Square Enix asked the team to make a game specifically for the handheld system. Um, so Chain of Memories, actually, uh, reading that again, um, would not have been a DS game then. It would have been a Game Boy Advance game. Gosh, I believe so, that, yeah. That series is old. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, you know, you, you notice these... You notice these uh, these themes and these series names coming up a lot, and and that's I, that it, it's it's not a um, a reference that seems out of place at all. Uh, if if you've played this game, or it, even as I said, if you if you are kind of looking into it, it's it's uh, a game that very clearly wears its uh, wears its influences kind of out on its sleeve. Um, Pretty good reviews. Uh, for the remix version, uh, Open Critic has a 76 uh, average. Uh, they did not have an aggregate for the original DS version, um, but I did a little bit of just poking around. Uh, we don't really use Metacritic anymore, but um, I did I did peek there just to see. And uh, the DS version actually got slightly higher scores. Um, high 80s, low 90s seemed to be uh, pretty uh, standard for it. Uh, got on a lot of top 10 lists uh, for DS games in the uh, in the year it was released, which is pretty cool, even if it wasn't the biggest seller. Uh, the, the numbers aren't bad. Um, sold about uh, 780,000 copies for the DS and about 270,000 uh, for the Switch. So around a million, all, all concerned. I, I was not able to find any uh, any ios android numbers um but i i would guess just uh with the type of game that it is it, it probably didn't sell a ton on those platforms um largely because square enix has a propensity to charge a lot comparatively for their ios products um so with that background i uh want to go ahead and talk a little bit about our personal histories with the game so let's start with josh did you you were were you born in 2008 uh or was that oh hardy hardy ha <laughs> I, uh, I had to um, i had to <laughs> i i was technically an adult um when this game <laughs> came out i was 18 um, I didn't play this around the launch of the game. Um, I came to this a few years later. Um, uh, so I'm going to mention a series that will get mentioned quite a lot during this recording. Um, I had played uh, both Persona 4 and Persona 3 at this yeah. point, and I was hungry for something close to that. And Persona 5 was just a twinkle in atlas's eyes at this point um so i uh was here you know there was a lot of positive um word of mouth around the world ends of you 
And a lot of people drawing that comparison and say, hey, if you like Persona, there's a lot of Persona um, DNA in here. Maybe not in terms of like the creative team, but just in terms of like the influences and the culture and all of that stuff. Um, so I bought it for the DS um, and played through it uh, over quite a long... It wasn't a game that I kind of like... Um, uh, you know, I chowed down on it. it was something I savored um, over a longer period of time. Um, and I really enjoyed um, um, the, the DS version of the game. For this um, recording, I had purchased the Switch version of the, the, the game uh, just because I was, you know, I, w I was hoping to kind of re-experience this with the newer art and all of that stuff and, you know, higher resolution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, we'll get into this later on. I, I really am not a fan of the Switch version of this game um, for a couple of reasons, um, which we'll expand on later. Um, so I ended up going back to the DS version to uh, refresh my memory. Um, and yeah, I, I just I had a better experience um, going back to the DS version. And uh, yeah, uh, and we'll get into that in a bit. But yeah. That's my history. Indeed, we will. Uh, yeah, I, I would have actually been working at GameStop at the time this came out. Um, so I, I, yeah, I picked this up right at launch and played it pretty close to launch, if not immediately. Uh, I, like Josh, I uh, was already a fan of Persona. And I um, just, in general, th this the aesthetic of this game was really something that I was and continued to be uh, pretty... Uh, pretty thoroughly into uh, fan of Final Fantasy, fan of Kingdom Hearts, uh, all of that kind of stuff. So uh, taking a look at what Square was offering with this game, it, it seemed like it'd be right up my alley, and uh, I, I ended up enjoying it a lot. I also picked up the uh, the Switch port, um, but I had I actually picked that up right about when it came out. It wasn't specifically for this recording, uh, but I played it for this recording, and I also have some pretty significant issues with it. I did finish it, uh, the, finish the, the Switch port, that is. Um, and I kind of flipped between um, playing with the Joy-Cons and playing in handheld. Well, that, that's not entirely true. I mostly played with the Joy-Cons. Um, I had a, a few hours of playtime when uh, my power was out one one day, uh, so I, I took the handheld out and uh, and gave that a shot too, so that I you know knew what what the uh, the controls felt like when when that was the actual method that I was using, and uh, that was better, but it still wasn't especially good. Um, so yeah, I've I've played through both of them in their both versions, that is in their entirety. Um, I lean towards the DS, but uh, I, I got a little bit more playtime in than, than it sounds like Josh did with the Switch version. Uh, but Brian, I believe you have only played the Switch version. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, it was kind of strange that the way I found out about this game. I, it, this happens a lot more now than I think it ever used to. But um, like every once in a while, you just hear about a game like, oh, that sounds right up my alley. And then somebody be like, yeah, that came out like a decade ago. Like I, I just had never heard of it. And this was the 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 deal with The World Ends With You. Um I had maybe heard some rumblings about it when it first came out, but I, I, I when it came out, I was kind of in the thick of finishing up college and and wasn't playing a lot of games at the time. And 
so when I saw the the release trailer for for the Switch version come out, it was like you know from the from the the minds behind Kingdom Hearts and which I'm really into and Final Fantasy, which I'm really into, and then the world ends with you comes up. I'm like, how did I never play this on DS? Um, so I never, I've still to this day never touched the DS version. Um, um, Leah will understand this feeling that I'm explaining right now is that I bought this game at launch for Switch, and then it sat in my Switch case for about a year and a half. <laughs> Um, right. <laughs> yeah. And then I and then I started it and I kind of I kind of bounced off it pretty quick because of the controls. Um, mm-hmm. I was it, it just wasn't what I was expecting when I was going into it. Um, and, and hearing you guys already kind of talk about the differences there uh, makes me feel a little bit more kind of justified in my negative feelings about it. I thought I was being a little too critical when I was playing it. Um, but then, yeah, so I put it down for a while and then I uh, had the opportunity to be on this podcast. So I, I picked it up and I, and I really played it in short order over the course um Really, over the course of a couple of weeks, um, I, I made it through the remix and then played the New Day chapter as well. Um, but yeah, uh, so I, it's 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 odd because just I, I've been you know pretty into it's surprising to me at least that I missed this game when it came out, but I, it completely went over my head, completely went past me, and I didn't uh, even come across it until the Switch version was released. Ooh. Well, uh, maybe we will be able to convince you that this, <laughs> the DS version is the better way to play this. <laughs> I don't know how uh, available it, it still is in, in DS form. I think that it's pretty... I, I don't think that it's, like, rare or anything. Um, so I, I have not actually looked into that, but it might still be, like, on Amazon if uh, if yeah. such a thing is, is appealing to anybody. Uh, l- last time I checked, and um, uh, granted that was probably about a year ago, but the price was expensive for a game that is that old, but not ridiculous. Um, which, like, if you've looked at the prices for DS Castlevania games, you you know oh, that those bad. those they're can yeah. those can go up quite dramatically. So I think um, I think as of a year ago, at least it was affordable, but. Uh, I don't know the situation now with the. I imagine the price will have gone down because it's more available on Switch, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, yeah, that that would be my guess as well. But uh, obviously, we did not research that particular detail. That's okay. That's okay. That's homework for you, the listener. Um, everybody loves homework. Uh, so this is where we issue a spoiler alert. Um, I I don't even <laughs> I don't even know what to say about spoiling the story of this game it it's it's pretty wild in the way that many anime stories can go pretty wild so um but the the thing is that the story is a pretty hefty part of the game uh so if you if this piques your interest i would say uh put the podcast down go take a look um and and maybe come back uh, or just keep listening leah has told josh and i before recording that she was going to perfectly explain every story beat and clarify everything in this podcast uh yeah so come back uh like i said when you've completely finished the game and understand and you'll know what i'm talking about (laughs) you'll know it's 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 fine um so with that said um let's start out with the scenario and the setting um so we mentioned that this takes place in uh in shibuya in uh in tokyo and uh what we haven't mentioned is that there are 
two versions of Shibuya that you spend time in. Uh, there is the RG, which is the real grounds, and the UG, which is the underground. Uh, most of your game is spent in the UG. That is where this uh, this game, and I say game in air quotes because it's not only the game that you, the player, are playing. It is also the game that the player that you are playing is playing. Uh, see, I, this is what I mean home. when I say that you should. Yeah, <laughs> that's that. Bong. Uh, that's this is what I mean when I say come back and you'll get it. No, it's it. So you, as the main character, uh, Neku, uh, are you wake up with amnesia? You know, that's this is a a pretty standard trope in in games like this, uh, or it can be anyway. Uh, and you find that you are part of a game in a version of Shibuya that is not the same version of Shibuya that you are normally familiar with. Uh, so the the storyline centers on Neku not only surviving uh, this this game that he has been put into, but also figuring out why he's there and what is happening. Um, like I said, the amnesia thing is something that you see. It's it's almost um, uh, well, I said it's kind of tropey. It, it's not a stereotype. Well, I guess it can be a stereotype in if uh, if you uh, if you have seen a lot of these uh, these types of games, it does tend to recur. Um, but uh, I had not seen anything specifically uh, with a storyline quite like this. Um, is this something that was surprising to either of you, or um, what, what did you feel like uh, was a strong or weak point of, of this particular storyline? I, I thought it was pretty strong. Um, I, like, kind of instantly starting the game, um, I know I said I bounced off it relatively quick the first time through. The, the one thing I really did like was the concept. You know, I mean, yeah. like the the you know playing as a amnesiac. Like it's funny because I was just um playing cross code, and that's how that game starts too. You know, you're this person mm-hmm. wakes up with no memories, and, and I was laughing because you've seen that you know so many times, and and that's true. But like the idea of playing this game where you're you're what you find out about the the UG the underground is that is that the players of this game have already died. And the reason that they're playing this game is for maybe an opportunity to get back to the RG, but it's basically just to stave off like a second level of true death that isn't really like to be erased, as they call it a bunch. Um, And I thought that was a really kind of a neat idea, Um, like just this kind of the concept that the that that purgatory isn't really purgatory. Purgatory is this, you know, beat the clock challenge, you know, in order for maybe to get a second chance or to be gone forever. Um, that that whole concept, I thought, hit pretty well at the beginning. Yeah. I think the, the game, the game benefits from a really strong theme. As complicated as the details of the actual plot get later on, <laughs> I think there is... Something that the King, like the Kingdom Hearts games, never had, which was just like the, a thematic consistency, something that a core idea that it keeps coming back to, um, and that being of like you need to expand your horizons as an individual, you need to reach out and experience other ideas, understand other people, etc. Which I, I appreciate, like um, you know. <laughs> it, you know the 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 moral of the story was that the friends we made along the way is not exactly new territory but i liked i liked that the angle here was we we're taking a character that couldn't be more misanthropic couldn't be more detached 
from other people and culture and society and trying to kind of stage by stage teach them the value of actually you know try attempting to understand someone else and and to reach out to other people and the value of those relationships um i think it speaks to the quality of the the storytelling as well that they take some someone as i know we i'm i'm kind of moving ahead a, a little bit but uh, my feelings of the story are connected to this character yeah this all this all ties yeah together. yeah mm. um neku is so despicably awful at the beginning yeah, of this game he's a real jerk like, yeah. he is not nice really really bad like uh, like I, I i felt that the first time i played it but revisiting it it was like wow like this is this is a guy like this is like incel territory right like this is this is somebody it does. who's yeah i mean yeah you yeah, you sure. get you get that in some other uh jrpgs where like you know the the main character is well like final fantasy 7 you know the main character starts out as like this kind of grumpy you know off, but neku is kind of next level on that he he is actively just mean yeah it takes it from like the not caring, like your squall, your cloud, being like, I'm too cool mm -hmm. for this or whatever. It takes that to the next beyond to the point where he's being actively hurtful to the people yeah. around him, like yeah. being yeah. just just cruel, just being, um, you know, it, it just just intentionally bad, um, which is not something you typically see when you're meeting a protagonist in a game. Yeah, yeah. and I and I I think it speaks like the, the, there is like by the time you finish the game, you are. I don't know if I forgive Neku for what he did early on because I like we've already uh, said given the spoiler warning. There is a point oh, yeah. where basically <laughs> uh, one of the Reapers asks um, uh, Neku to kill a supporting character Shiki um, to basically win the game, and he doesn't hesitate. He just does it, um, or at least yeah. attempts attempts to do it. And like we're being asked to sympathize and take the position of this character who's like very early on the game does possibly one of the most despicable things a protagonist could do. And yet by the end, I do maybe like is not the word, but like I, I felt for Neku and I felt like he had done enough to recover and redeem himself by the end. Um, and I, I feel that that's that's really successful, given that like the starting point that you you know you begin with this character. The fact that I have any feeling for him whatsoever is a huge success. So what I what I think about uh, about Neku's kind of journey or or where he ends up, I, I agree that it that his characterization uh, is very effective with the contrast between the beginning and the end what i'm not sure that i really buy into is kind of how that change occurs because it seems like a really big flip like he starts out as as you mentioned josh he he um is obviously very ready to kill uh shiki his his first partner uh in the game but as soon as that's over with he like two days later is has her taken from him as his entry fee so he's she is literally the most important thing which is what what they say uh the when you are entered into this this game uh the the people who run the game uh the reapers that we've mentioned um they uh take as an entry fee 
uh, the most important thing in the world to you. And what they take from Neku on his second go around is Shiki, who he has just been ready to kill like a day <laughs> or two ago. And that that part, I don't know. It, the, the, they don't even necessarily portray it as a romance. It's I guess you could interpret it that way, but it's not explicitly that. Um, but it just that particular relationship, whatever it, it it ends up being, just does such a hard flip that I don't know that I really bought into that. So I I'm gonna I'm not gonna give it a pass. I mean, it, it's it's definitely everything you just said was was true. It's just mm-hmm. I think that. Like the way that they tried to sell that and frame it, not to get too deep in the weeds here, which we're going to do a lot, um, <laughs> but uh, is that Niku had lost all of his memories and you find out that that was his entry fee for the first game. So I think that that her is literally the only thing he has any attachment to at all at the end of that first week, even though it might not be like some grand, you know, some like big thing. But so like I'm I was thinking like I bought it at the beginning of me like, OK, yeah, that's the only person he knows in this world. So now he's completely alone again. She would be the most important thing to him. But then I thought about like like literally two sentences later, he's like, well, I have to save her. I'm like, well, <laughs> do you, you, do you, really? <laughs> you like know? you didn't yeah. you just yeah, didn't you just try to, you know, force her into a pillar of light to be erased? Like, um, <laughs> so, yeah, th- th- there's definitely some conceptually some, you know, some gray area there. Not not quite mm-hmm. sure what they were looking what what feeling they were trying to hit. I suppose that once you if you start with a character that is that unlikable, you kind of have to make a couple of jumps. I, I, I yeah, I, I can I can see that. <laughs> I do think um, in the second week with Joshua, um, he is still kind of struggling with his original outlook. Like it's not like he's suddenly turned into a empathetic altruistic person he's still saying the same you know um what what's the line he says you have your values i have mine leave me alone all that stuff he's still saying all that that rhetoric um and he's and he's paired with joshua who is pretty much like uh, it's like if you kind of took those like confused emotions and negative feeling and kind of solidified it into something more um, cold and logical. Um, and uh, and I do think like that chat, that whole section is like being confronted with what that looks like from the from the outside. Mm. Um, yeah, Josh, Joshua is not so much angry as he is smug. Yeah, mm. yeah. He's got that that knowledge, you know, that Niku doesn't have. Um, Yeah. So in the second week, uh, like Josh was talking about, you play uh, with with another companion. Um, And I guess one thing that I just wanted to bring up is that the reason that Niku has a companion, you would think that, like, he's just a loner. He'd want to play by himself, you know. But but in order to be able to fight any of the noise in the underground, which are the the primary enemies that you're fighting against, that you have to form a pact with another person. So that speaks yeah. to Josh's um, what he was talking about the thematic elements before about how it's kind of about Niku learning how to make connections and to work with other people. So he doesn't have that ability in the underground to just withdraw completely because he at some point he's reliant on the help of someone else, which is something that he very much obviously does not like. Yes. So uh, we mentioned that um, the second kind of uh, we're, we're going into uh, the characters here, which I think is a natural transition. Um, the the first character that you meet is Neku. Uh, the second character that uh, is kind of one of the major 
plot points is uh, Shiki, who is your first partner in this game. Uh, the game spans over seven days, they tell you. Uh, and during those seven days, you receive objectives each day that you have to complete with your partner. And um, it doesn't have to be you specifically who completes it, but somebody of all of the pairs that is uh, that is out in the, in the underground playing uh, has to complete this objective or everybody gets uh, erased. So um, I, I, I liked the, um, the kind of purgatory uh comparison that that uh brian i think you made um yeah that's that's kind of what this is like they they have died uh and and been entered here but they're not really gone yet because it could turn around and go the other way um so first you have uh shiki as your partner then in the second week you have joshua uh and then in the third week you have beat who you have met previously with uh, the person who turns out to be his sister. And God, I'm glad that turned out to be his sister and not his girlfriend because she's about 12. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's they they do not... You meet Beat and Rhyme on, I, I believe, the, the first couple yeah. of days. It's in the first it's couple day, of days. It's day one. Yeah, it's day one. It is day yep. one. Okay. Uh, yeah, so you, you meet them and, you know, you, all you really know is that there's this kind of... Um, this quasi skater dude who um is very badly wants to be a skateboarder um and you know his this this other little girl basically uh who's hanging out with him and who's very you know bright and cheerful and sweet uh and they don't actually specify their relationship um for a long time until you finally find out that it is his sister but yeah i that really could have gone either way um <laughs> yeah rhyme uh, rhyme is basically the physical manifestation of innocence at, while yes. beat is the physical manifestation of a chain wallet you know what i mean like <laughs> basically how that works out yeah and um and so they they really are are polar opposites and the thing i, I love about the character of beat um i mean in the whole relationship with rhyme it gives him his whole motivation as we'll go into mm -hmm. but like this is just something I feel that's lost in games now where everything is purely voice acted because was beat is that character from from an older style JRPG that is always just pointing and screaming at everything. Like he's just <laughs> yeah. he's like like filled with rage and hate and embarrassment. And ev I mean, everything he does is is it's either at zero or eleven and there's no in between. And so it, I was instantly endeared to, to those two characters when we first met them because um because because beat just seemed like so off the rails and rhyme seemed like kind of like this the soothing calm presence within the world um so yeah they, they 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 play off each other pretty well and to find out later on their brother and sister really did you know kind of work well for that motivation yeah you 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 get some uh backstory and that that was actually one of the the bits of backstory that i also thought uh worked really well um because you you hear about um kind of what happened in beat and rhymes uh real lives before they were killed and and sent into the game and it's basically the same type of thing uh in in their life as it as it is in the game where you know he kind of uh just was a jerk and you know didn't want to pay attention to his parents and you know was very uh just hot-headed and uh, and not um not especially um 
not especially the favorite child, I guess, because of all of the issues, or at least he perceived himself to not be the favorite child. And so he ran off, his sister came after him, and uh, and they were killed. So he not only uh, has this protective instinct toward his sister, he's also got a lot of guilt because he, as he sees it, is the one who got them killed. So uh, yeah, it's I, I liked that, that backstory, and I thought it worked really well, um, because Beat has a lot of uh, kind of stereotype elements to him. You know, he... he uh, <laughs> he's dumb. Like he, yeah. and they they make they make a lot out of. But it's not it's not kind of a malicious level of dumb. Like he's he's still very um, uh, motivated, you know. Yeah. And he yeah. he he is willing to do what he needs to do. So I mean, it's not that I it's not that he's a bad person. It's just that he's kind of simple, I guess would 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 maybe be a a good way to put it. But he cares a lot about his sister, and he you know has uh basically most of what he does is in service of of doing right by her and i think that that works really well for him so yeah um so those are those are the three sets of partners that you uh work with over the course of the game uh and we can we can get into uh their individual deals uh as as we continue on um you also meet uh non-playable character wise you meet uh the reapers who are uh i kind of mentioned this before they uh are a group of uh people i guess they're people they don't ever really specify whether they're alive or not but i guess they kind of have to be um i i'm, I'm not 100 percent sure about that maybe you guys have ideas as well no, but they, uh, yeah. they are the ones who run the game yeah so like the the thing that confused me about that is that, um, and again, we already gave the spoiler warning, but um, after round one um, of the game, Beat uh, finds himself like like he's basically forced to make a choice between being a race or becoming a reaper. So mm-hmm. in my mind, I was like, is everyone who is a reaper, are they former players? Are they not? And I don't think I ever got a great answer for that um well some of them uh, the the two um kind of main reapers that that you uh see the most often you, yeah. you you run into a lot of reapers most of them are just dudes in hoodies which i i mean is is pretty good i actually yeah. I, I think yeah. that 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 fits the aesthetic pretty well um but the um the kind of standouts that that you meet um they mention things about uh, about their pay and about like uh, having time off in between these things right, and and yeah. like it's it, it for them it seems like it is basically just a job so that's I, that i i agree it, it doesn't quite square up i mean maybe there are just different types of reapers that that have been recruited for different reasons maybe you know it's i i'm, I'm not really sure what to make of that because uh the, the way that um that beat gets kind of taken in by them does not seem to be the norm really right yeah, I guess it depends on on depends on what division of Reaper Incorporated you work for. I guess. Yeah, I guess yeah, yeah. so. Yeah, uh, I I do love the 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 aesthetic of the Reapers in general. Like they kind of it reminds me a lot of Organization Thirteen in uh, mm-hmm. Final F- and uh, Kingdom Hearts. Excuse me. Um, but with just kind of like a more punky edge to them. You know what I mean? Like 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 I mean it's just. There's a lot of sleeveless tank tops and lollipops and sunglasses happening um, among the Reaper crew, and and they're all kind of jaded and and like it's very important that that other people know that they don't care, even though they're doing their jobs and like they're not going to yeah. get involved. And it's it's they they've got a whole vibe to them when you're playing yeah. through the game. They're all very active on Twitter. Is what you're saying? 
Yeah, <laughs> I I think that uh, that might <laughs> that that might be a uh, pretty decent uh, way to categorize them. Yes. Um, you run into uh, the two that I mentioned, um, I, and I'm blanking on one of them's name. It's um, Uzuki and Keria, uh, I think I'm pronouncing those correctly, um, are the two that you uh, kind of get the most input on. So we have the uh, standard issue Reapers, uh, who uh, provide battles, who guard things, who uh, give you... Um, assignments to break through walls uh, and sometimes we'll actually fight you uh then we've got the game masters who are the ones who seem to rotate the most frequently uh they are the ones who are different and uh from week to week and actually give you the assignments to go uh and accomplish uh from day to day and uh after that we have the conductor who is kind of the mega game master i think um don't see as much of them and then i believe the the composer is above that so you know you have a whole hierarchy that you uh that you have set up and you see people in most of these roles in fact in all of these roles i believe um and um yeah so um I think that it's pretty effective. I, I kind of alluded to before that um, with the um, there's kind of this hierarchical structure and it just seems like a business, like a job. Um, having this kind of hierarchy actually fits pretty well with that, I think. Um, it, it doesn't quite take out the personality. Like it, it it's it's not quite impersonal but it is you know it's a job to these people they have they all have to answer to somebody higher up and yeah. uh I, I i think that that's uh that's interesting that they were able to justify it that way rather than just say okay here's a mini boss here's a mid boss here's you know the, your actual boss here's the final boss uh which they do still but it's it's giving you a reason that maybe some rpgs like this do not yeah, it's kind of neat to see it like as it progresses throughout the week. Um, you hear the Reapers kind of talking about, well, we can't get involved until day five. Those are the rules. And they're talking about their mm -hmm. pecking order. And and it's kind of known that the players, if there are any left at the end of the week that haven't been a race, will end up facing off one on one or, you know, two on one with the game master um, to kind of determine the fate of the game. And and having that kind of. Pecking, pecking order that hierarchy among themselves uh, leads for some pretty interesting conversations that you hear and then see in cutscenes with the Reapers just about like like uh, uh, the two characters that you just mentioned whose names I obviously mm -hmm. instantly forgot. Um, they, <laughs> Izuki and Keria. Izuki, Izuki and is Keria. the uh, the the woman the with the pink hair, yeah. and then uh, and then Keria is the one with the lollipop yeah. they, <laughs> and um, the kind of orange hair they're basically like you know like they're having conversations that kind of equate to just you know complaining about your boss a little bit sometimes mm -hmm. you know what i mean like like what are they doing like is this there's no objective today what what type of game is this and and then the other one will kind of be like ah well you know who cares that means more time for me not to have to do anything and take another day off yeah. and, you know it's just it, it does it does kind of give them some interesting ways to explore the characters in that universe to kind of you know like so you really see their motivations, but one of them, one of them really wants the game to like ramp up. Another one's just kind of like, ah, we'll kick our feet up. Let's do nothing today. You know, it's kind of like a real workplace. 
Yeah. And you and you find out stuff about them too. Like she uh you know is very into the idea of uh of getting a promotion mm-hmm. and and being able to kind of move up the ranks and in fact I I believe they they well, they do let her serve as the game master on on one of the uh in in during one of the um uh one of the weeks and um whereas her partner is I, I you hear mention of uh that he has been offered promotions before and has turned him down because he he doesn't he doesn't want all that responsibility yeah. you know it's it, like i know these people i work with these yeah, people exactly. it's it's <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting to have them put into this kind of um this kind of scene so the gameplay mechanic is uh probably where this game for me really departed from a lot of the games that had led me to it. Um, like I mentioned that, you know, I'm, I was, I was and am a big fan of things like Final Fantasy and Kingdom Hearts and, um, just in general anime aesthetic inspired JRPGs. Um, most of those are relatively straightforward. You get into a battle, you fight the bad guy, you push the buttons, sometimes you select things from a menu and, you know, you, you hit them until they fall down. Um, with the DS version in particular, um, some of these mechanics were a little bit difficult, I think, for me and a lot of people to get onboarded with, um, because uh, when I was uh, talking previously about the um, the development, uh, this was a really early DS game, actually, um, and, and like many of the early titles for new systems, it really dove headfirst into here's what we have um here are the unique features and and nintendo is especially notable i i won't say good for this or bad for this i will say (laughs) they're notable for this because sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't um but when you get a brand new console that has brand new features that maybe haven't been available on other consoles previously like the dual screen mechanic like the touch screens uh which up to that point had not really been a thing um Nintendo in particular and and other uh, companies as well. I'm thinking of Lair and the motion mechanic with the the controllers. Um, they'll use them. It, it and it doesn't always matter whether it needs to be in there or not. Excuse me. Uh, it doesn't always matter whether it needs to be in there or not. They have that capability and they want to showcase it, so they're going to do it. Um, and in this case, what that meant was um, using both screens to control each of the characters that you are controlling in a particular battle. Um, so you would be using both the touchscreen and the D-pad to control Neku and whoever Neku's partner happened to be in that day. Now, the Switch version changes that because, as as you know, we do not have two screens on the Switch. Uh, although it, it could have been interesting. Mm, I, I guess they technically could not have actually done this, so never mind. But um, it, it could have technically been interesting if you had um, part of the um, part of the game like on your uh on your handheld pad and part of it on your TV, which they could have actually done with the Wii U. So, yep. you know, missed a trick, missed a trick there, Nintendo. Uh, but <laughs> but um, since you are dealing with one screen for the Wii, whether that be your television or if you are playing in handheld mode, the Switch itself, um, it works a little bit differently. Um, you have one particular uh, motion or, or touch pattern that will call out your partner and have them do their thing, uh, whereas everything else uh, is, is, how, um, is how Neku 
actually interacts with and fights enemies. Um, so, uh, Josh, I'll direct this to you first, since you have also played the DS version. Um, did you find it difficult to kind of control both of the characters at the same time? Because I know that was something that that really kind of threw me at the beginning. And you get used to it, but... Yeah, yeah I, I absolutely did. But w one of the things I really like about this game and the DS version specifically is how the theming of the story is tied into the gameplay and how um, the way it's set up, it forces you to consider like, cause even though you can set it, like you can set it up in the menus that um, they kind of go on autopilot. If you're not directly controlling the second character, you benefit so much from that, um, that sync ability if you actually master the combat uh, on the dual screens. And I love the way that that ties in with Neko's, Neko's journey about relying on other people and learning that you can be more effective if you work as a team and, and forcing the player to kind of split their brain between two people and, and consider both screens. And I think um, as as much of a struggle that was, and it was like a wall that I think you have to overcome if you're playing the DS version, I ended up fi finding it really fulfilling and, and really engaging. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I find the, the Switch version so lacking um, when compared to the DS version, because replacing that dual screen setup with essentially like an assist every once in a while on the the single screen just completely dulls the impact of the the kind of thematic tie-in with the gameplay um it works it's functional it's 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 a compromise that doesn't doesn't ruin the experience but it doesn't it doesn't land in the same way as as the DS version did for me i i would agree with that yeah i i can't think of very many other games where you really had to control both screens at once in in different ways kind of a like rub your tummy and pat your head type of thing um i the only one that really comes to mind and i'm sure i'm missing a bunch of them is the henry hatsworth game which was completely different you know you're not controlling two different characters you're controlling two different um kind of play types on that very good game and i recommend it but um also that's one of the only other instances that i can think of where you really had to split your attention like that and you know not just kind of go on to autopilot on on one screen if you really wanted to get the most out of it um but brian you haven't played the the ds version so uh, how did you feel about using your partner did they feel a little bit more i, I mean did they feel necessary i, I guess <laughs> they they felt necessary but they felt almost more kind of like a summon in a traditional final fantasy mm. game um than like someone who was there the entire time so to to boil it down to its absolute like the, the the most simple part um, that I can is that you'd basically have to execute a touch screen command in order to bring them into the battle area. So it would be just Niku out there. You'd be using your pins to attack, and then when a meter would fill up on the on the right, like kind of a like a, a an extra pin in the top right corner, then then you could activate your partner, and you have to do like a touch screen control in order to activate them. The, the frustrating thing, and it was frustrating the entire game, it didn't get any better um, or worse, it just kind of was, you know, you just kind of had to accept it as a mechanic, um, was that sometimes the the 
touchscreen command for your partner entering the field, it was the same as one of the touchscreen commands for one of the pins you had equipped. Mm-hmm. So it became very unclear, like, well, hey, I'm going to swipe up right now. If I swipe up, is my is is um, Joshua going to come in and help me, or is this big icicle going to pop up from the ground? And I and I never really got a sense of of which one was going to happen and at what time. You know, it it really was inconsistent, and it became frustrating, especially later on, because some of the bosses and some of the just the combat encounters later on. Um, I I wouldn't say that any of them required a ton of precision, but I it did require managing my HP in a way that I really wanted to know that when I made this motion on the touchscreen, a specific thing was going to happen. And it did make some of those later fights a little bit more of a pain than it needed to be. Um, early on, it didn't really affect too much. Cause yeah, if I swiped up, maybe, maybe the exact command didn't come through, but I was still winning battles with relative ease. It, it, not a game I would consider to be too terribly challenging. Um, but it, it, just having such a lack of control of what was happening on the battlefield was a persistent frustration, without a doubt. Yeah. 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 And, and I have to say, like, the, the difference that it makes, you know, not only having, like, uh, a clear separation between the two characters, the, the, the secondary character is controlled uh, via the D-pad, um, and the primary uh, Neku is controlled by the the touchpad on the DS with the stylus. Not only does that delineation uh, it feel like a huge improvement in terms of control, I just felt the stylus was just way more accurate than the the kind of touch mm-hmm. controls on the Switch. Oh, like yeah, I sure. felt like I was I was able to reliably know what attack was going to happen whenever I swiped or tapped or anything with the stylus in a way that I just didn't when I was using my my fat stubby finger on the switch switch screen um like there's so there's so many abilities um uh in this game and with a variety of different inputs like there's even one which I don't know if it's in the Switch version or not. I don't know if the Switch can actually allow this to happen. But in the DS version, there's one where you have to blow into the DS to activate <laughs> it. There's so many fun abilities there, and and um, and I and part of the joy is at, like unlike a lot of DS games where I feel like that there's some forced kind of touchscreen integration. I actually felt like the touchscreen stuff in this was like really strong. And 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 felt like you were, I don't know. I I I like the kind of like Okami esque kind of drawing and and all of that stuff in here, and and to have that kind of marred so much by the Switch version, and 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 feeling like I was picking abilities based on like my like ease of execution rather than just mm-hmm. the ability itself, like yeah. like. I'm literally just picking abilities where I tap or slash and that's it. I'm not picking anything else because I I don't yeah. know if it's going to happen or not. For sure. And another yeah. thing to take into account too, I didn't, it only figured this out after th- this last time playing through is that the Switch, which I love, it's a wonderful device, is designed to be held and played with the Joy-Cons if you're playing in portable mode. So yeah. Yeah. if you're holding it, the Switch in, in, in portable and then you're only holding onto the weight of the switch with your with your non-dominant hand so that your dominant hand can do the touch screen like it just becomes a very uncomfortable game to play and yeah, like i actually yeah. found i actually found myself like the best my the best time i had playing the world ends with you on switch was i'd be sitting on my on my couch with my knees up and i would have a pillow on my knees and then i would rest the switch on the pillow so that way i could have two fingers there to to do the touch screening and um 
just just to have to go to that length to do it seems ridiculous. Um, it worked. I mean, it would end up being very comfortable to play, but um, I I tried to mess with the docked mode. I know Leah, you said you play most of your games docked. I uh, I used to play most of them docked. Now that I have a couple kids, I, I'm I find it portable makes a lot more sense for me a lot of times. But yeah. Did you find was dock mode any better? Because when I used the Joy-Con motion controls in dock mode, I was having almost no accuracy at all with getting yeah. where I wanted it done. Yeah, that's that's kind of um, I, I I that was probably my biggest problem with, and, and it's a big one to have because you know you have to be able to control the game. Um, uh, you had mentioned Brian that um, they the the way that you do your attacks and and also um from what Josh was mentioning about uh the way that your uh partners do their attacks uh there's only kind of a limited number of input types that the game will take as as indications of what you actually want to be doing you're not using um on, on the um the switch version you do not use um any kind of directional pads or anything like that at all um you are only using um tap to move uh and and you know slashing and and tapping and and that kind of thing um the problem that i had and i'm not sure whether this was just because it's a switch or whether it was a problem with this game specifically or whether it was a problem with my switch um was that my controller kept not exactly desyncing, but um, because I know I know that uh, some switches, especially uh, earlier models, have had issues with uh, Joy-Cons desyncing. Um, it wasn't that it would lose sync completely; it's that I would have to continuously recenter it because, like, I was moving so much, you know, because I was trying to slash things and and poke at different parts of the screen that it would just not be centered at all, and nothing was drifting. Like I, I, I didn't have, thankfully, controller drift, um, but. It, I I appreciate that they did make it very easy to recalibrate your aim. Um, all you had to do was point at the middle of the screen and hit the Y button. Um, but the fact that I had to do that so many times, like multiple times in each encounter, um, because otherwise I, I would just be pointing off screen, even though I was not pointing off screen or... Um, you know, just missing when I tried to, to slash a specific part of the screen. Um, it... it it really took something out of it that I couldn't just tap where I wanted to tap and and feel like I had that um, that agency over what my character was doing. Um, we briefly kind of well we we've been talking about um, how how you do your um, be it by touch or by by motion how you do your um, your combat moves. Those are uh, actually determined by what kind of pins you have equipped. Um, so. We uh, mentioned uh, a, a little while ago that without a partner, you can't actually do any damage to the noise. Um, we also can't do any damage to the noise if you don't have any attack pins equipped. And that's kind of the collect them all aspect of this game is um, through battle and um, through uh, you can purchase them in shops. You can um, you find them sometimes. Most frequently, you'll get them as battle rewards. Um, you get uh, pins. And that's just what it sounds like. It's just little badges. Um, and you have a specific number of slots that you can use to equip whatever pins you take into battle. Each of these pins has a brand associated with it. Uh, if the brand matches with what's popular in the area that you're in, you'll do more damage. If the brand is not a popular brand, then you'll do less damage. Um, so it's kind of cool that it gives you that incentive to not just fall into 
one setup and and stick with that. Uh, a lot of the pins will do um, similar things or will at least use uh, the same input, which is both good and bad because it means that you can shuffle your pins around for the purposes of uh, you know matching up what brand you you uh, will be most effective in a given area. But also, if you have more than one pin. Uh, that uses the same type of input or uses the same type of input that your partner uses, then I'm not even sure what exactly determines which one will take effect because it's not that both of them will take effect. It, it I, I don't know whether uh, that uh, just depends on what order you have them equipped in. Um, they do have cooldowns. So, I mean, obviously, if one of them... I'm pretty sure it's the order because I had that mm -hmm. a lot um, because, um, and I, not to bag on the controls anymore, but... Um, there were just some some pin motions that just would not work on my switch touch screen. Yeah. Um, not well, not re um. So I, I I ended having ended up excuse me having multiple pins equipped where I would either have to slash an enemy or drag open space, and it was always mm -hmm. the first pin in the it in slot one would get used first, and then when the cooldown happened, it would switch to the second pin. So at least in the switch okay. version, that's how it worked. That yeah, that makes sense. I think I think that's probably how it works in the DS version as well. Uh, that that makes the most sense. Um, I would try to have so that I didn't really run into that. I would try to have things equipped where uh, it was different motions. But like I said, there are only so many different motions you can have, and some of them, as Brian was saying, work better than others. Um, so yeah, it trying to do. Um, there's one where you have to. Um, scratch an enemy they call it um so just you know rub your uh your your pointer oh gosh uh across an enemy repeatedly until they uh usually catch fire or something to that effect um there are things where you have to um point at either neku or an enemy and hold down the attack button um that can work and it can not work if your aim is bad or if uh things are moving around you very quickly you might not have time to get uh and and yet some of that is intentional sure you know you want to you want to have that balance of you can do this really powerful attack but only if you can stand still for five seconds um which you can't always because things do tend to be pretty active around you um yeah it's 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 an it's unique uh, i i have not found a game that used quite the same type of of system yeah. and uh equipment loadout uh as this does uh for for better and for worse um i i'm glad it's there but there are definitely changes that i think could have been made potentially um be before before we move on from pins i feel like mm -hmm. it's my duty to point out that one of the the pins is called Bear Hug Magnum, um, which I think is one of the greatest uh, greatest names that you could give a pin. Anyway, um, just uh, just I used Sexy Beam a lot. I'm not sure oh, what. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, one of them's called Sexy D, uh, which is really yep. Really uh -huh. bad. Um, sure is. <laughs> and and your question is, <laughs> I, yeah. Um, what is this game? Rated? Just to, just to um, to to carry on from what Leah was actually saying. Um, um, uh, what I like about this system, and it, like uh, one of the reasons why I uh, am a defender of the breakable weapons in breath of the wild is because that system forces you to engage with the other systems in the game and i think this 
the the approach of like different uh, pins, different brands are going to be more powerful and more effective in certain areas is such a brilliant piece of design that forces you to engage with different abilities and different uh, different uh, setups. Because if it wasn't here, you could very easily just settle into a uh, a build for your character that's just super effective no matter where you go and i liked that this created variety that i started engaging with um setups that weren't mine you know wouldn't be my go-to but because they were more effective in this particular area i did i was forced to engage well not forced but was incentivized to engage with this yeah um there are a couple of places where you are forced yeah. like you and and that was if you don't know that that's coming that can be yeah. a little bit of a, a a stumbling block I guess. Um there it's it's very rare but there there are a couple of areas where um like kind of going into boss fight areas I guess where you can only use one certain brand or two certain brands. Um and there are some pins that are unbranded so if you want to do they're not very powerful but at least you have them. Um but yeah, if you if you go into that and you you don't you haven't been collecting pins or you know you only have a certain number, they level up as well. The more you use them, uh, and yeah, if you if you haven't been doing that with at least a couple of different types of pins, then you can find yourself uh, at a bit of a disadvantage for sure. I also speaking of the leveling up part, and I know we'll get to the shopping and things like that in a, in a little bit. But one of the cool things is that the game throws a lot of pins at you, like and it's and it's yeah. not shy mm-hmm. about throwing like um the same pin at you again. Um, or like you might level up a pin to its full level and it'll just spawn another pin of the same type, but at base level. And so what I was doing a lot is that I would have a pin like kind of like my third slot when I unlocked it would be my kind of like catch all pin. And what I would do is I would level up pins in that slot to maximum. And then when I would go to shops, I would use that to sell. And because you could kind of farm them for gold or, or whatever, I can't remember what the currency was called, and then sell them at shops. And then because because there's a lot of commerce involved in the game, if you want to have some of the best gear or if you're in an area where a particular brand is more popular and you just you don't want to go through the rigmarole of, you know, leveling up stuff or trying to go, you could just go to a shop and you could buy things of that brand to try to make you more powerful in that area. It's a, it gives you a lot of options for success, which I really enjoyed. Um, and I, and despite, despite the controls and stuff, I would play around switching pins out, uh, testing out different abilities, seeing what worked well against certain enemies. And um, like some of the airborne enemies, like it, there's some areas of attack that just some attacks just wouldn't work. You'd flip out pins. And I found myself always changing my pin setup, which in a game like that, that's not how I normally play. Like I would normally find like Josh, I'd f- I would find my build that worked and I would just bash my head against every wall until I could get through it. And with the world ends with you forced me to engage with other systems. So I thought that was a pretty good move. So I'm going to read a couple of pieces of correspondence throughout the, uh, the recording here. And I want to start with one from a nup Raptor from the forum who says they really embraced the dual screen and touchscreen functions of the DS and made them integral parts of the gameplay in a varied and creative fashion. Even better, the mechanics switch up throughout the game when you find new pins and new partners. So you have to keep learning new techniques throughout the art design is striking. And some of the noise enemies and bosses in particular look stunning. The plot is fun and has an anime feel where they combine slightly absurd melodrama with a sense of awareness of its own goofiness. <laughs> it's probably going to go down in gaming history as a sort of cult classic and respected oddity. It really deserves to be played by more people. 
Aside from its many other positive points, everyone should get to experience a boss battle where an unhinged anime villain screams sine cosine tangent while he makes his attacks. Oh, are we referring to the Grim Heaper? The Grim <laughs> Heaper. Would you who, like to talk? Would you like to talk about the Grim Heaper? Who I know he's your favorite. Piles of garbage to announce his presence. Lives inside said piles of garbage. Comes out of them to fight you while making math puns. That Grim Heaper. I told yeah, my wife as I was playing this game <laughs> laughing out loud, she said, what? And I said, I just met this video game character and I would literally leave you for him right now. <laughs> I would walk out of this door. I love that character so much because it just represented, it represented all the fun stuff about this game to me. It was bonkers off the wall. It made, it made very little sense, but it made complete sense within the confines yeah. of this game. Like, of course this guy exists. <laughs> like, why wouldn't he exist? All I wanted was just more of him. And, um, well, and good was, news, they're making an anime. Yeah, oh, I know. <laughs> I saw him in the preview. I got so excited. It, it, it's it's one of those things I've been making jokes about it, like on the Slack, the Canyon Slack about it. But it, I just I, I just found this this type of odd specificity to the villainy of this character just it it worked for me on every level yeah and uh yeah i just it it's one of those things like they're cartoony over the topness can be done well or or can kind of ruin a character and i feel like they just pitched i mean they just hit it right out of the park with this character i i there's i have nothing negative to say about him yeah i I hope that in the anime we get a scene where he just screams the digits of pi for like five minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is a thing that happens yeah. in the game, although it's sadly not voice acted. Yeah. So, yeah. you know. I, I, I think the only shame is that I think the Grim Heaper is is great. I agree with everything Brian said. I think he is the most memorable uh, villainous character in this game. Um, I think it's just a real shame that... Um, characters like the conductor um and some of the other the, some of the reapers stand out but like as far as like core villains go um the grim heapers like the real kind of standout and everyone else is kind of i i, I hate to use this as a, a negative but like very standard kingdom heart style villain of <laughs> scheming you know scheming in the background and having kind of ill-defined <laughs> motivations she's kind of the sub boss uh i i guess you you would maybe call her um uh, mitsuki kanishi yeah. uh is the um she's kind of the second in command uh through or you see her as the second in command uh through most of the game and uh during the last day or the last week the last um uh, set of days um she is the one who is uh she's been given the position of game master and she is very motivated to uh to kind of wipe out neku um who is as you find out the only actual player during the last day um so uh she's she's built up to be really kind of the big bad um and it it i i mean she works as a character for me but it it is kind of uh, like you were saying, Josh, it's almost a letdown after uh, after the Grim Heaper. Um, it, it kind of would have been. Plus, her boss fight was incredibly frustrating for me um, because uh, there is a section where, uh, with with most of the major boss fights, uh, you fight the kind of humanoid form of the character, and then usually about halfway through, they go into a stereotypical anime phase two boss and become a big, impressive-looking uh, noise, which is cool, and, and I'm, I'm fine with that, but her noise form takes you to, like, this kind of 
white room thing and takes away all of Neku's pins. So you have to have your, your partner attack her. Well, there's not, at least that I found, a super reliable way to get at that time it's beat to get him to attack her in an effective way. So I spent a lot of time in that room because she wasn't really hurting me, but I couldn't get him to attack her in the way that he needed to in order to um uh in order to make progress any more quickly. Um I figured out a little bit later on that you kind of have to dispel some of the shadows that she's calling out by just running through them, but they don't tell you that and it's oh, not really? really signposted. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I had no get... idea. That was the uh-huh. This was this was the moment where I said to myself like am I going to finish this game? Because I, I, I mean, I wanted to. I, I wanted to for the podcast and because I was, you know, I wanted to see it through because I was so far into it, but yeah, that was that fight was very obtuse. Yeah. Yeah, she I and I I I don't recall whether the the specific mechanics are the same in the DS version, uh, unfortunately, but um, I, I think that they probably are approximately the same. But there's a more reliable way to make your partner hit her in that in that situation. Uh, here, you just kind of have to stand near her and call out beat and hope that he hits her and and he won't hit her when there are uh, she kind of calls up minions to sort of attack you and then she slashes at you with her with her fingernails basically <laughs> it's it's a very cool looking boss but the um the actual gameplay in that section i did not love um disappointing but uh it doesn't live up to the grim keeper i will say <laughs> um i'm gonna go ahead and read uh another piece of correspondence this is from toon skatoon from the forum who says I made it through most of the second week of this game on Switch. I had no okay time, but it showed me that life is too short for a game to require its player to use touch controls for traversal, especially during combat. I've heard the DS version blends D-pad and touch controls, which might be better, but I'm not dying to find out for myself. <laughs> and uh, third drawing from the forum says, I had high hopes that The World Ends With You would bring back the halcyon days of Square from the 90s, where they experimented and produced interesting new titles. It partially succeeds, but I just couldn't get the controls on the DS to work. Finicky, flawed, whatever you want to call it. They just didn't gel with me, so I put it aside. I picked up the remaster and hoped that I would be able to use traditional controls. So far, I've only been able to progress using the controls on the touchscreen of the Switch, the only game I've used it for. I appreciate the attempt, Square, but perhaps less experimental controls next time? Yeah, if you if you didn't like the DS controls, uh, I have bad news about the Switch controls, yeah. unfortunately. It is kind of a, a risk, you know, like, I mm-hmm. mean, it's it's a sure. it's a leap, you know, to, to get to, to do that. Um, the DS was was kind of great for things like that. You know, you had t- titles like Super Mario 64 DS and um, and Phantom Hourglass that would that would require players to use to traverse with the touchscreen. And I never quite got I thought good at it, but it was always it always led to interesting choices having to be made about gameplay. So um, I respect the, the I respect the fact that they went for something completely different because because I can say that mm-hmm. without a doubt, like the controls in the world's end with you. While I have many criticisms, it, it plays like unlike any other game I've ever played. So just by just by new and interesting alone, it, it's enough to kind of, you know, like it's worth seeing to just kind of see how all that stuff works. And in some cases doesn't work, but it's a it's an mm-hmm. interesting choice. Yeah, for sure. It is. It is unique. Uh, Colin Alonzo, also from the forum, says, I got this a few years after release when its reputation in the DS's library was well established. I enjoyed the story. While Neku's character development will be obvious from the start, the Reaper's game, the twists and turns it takes, and its many likable characters were interesting and fun. While battles are very busy, I find that the key to not being overwhelmed is the light puck. Uh, We didn't, uh, side note, we didn't really mention this, but this is uh, from the DS version exclusively and is kind of how you determine which of your characters, uh, be it Neku or his partner, will be doing the most damage. Uh, 
uh, and will be the most effective in, in fighting whatever noise you are currently fighting. Uh, it is far more than just a combo multiplier. It's a guide that helps switch focus between the battle on each screen at appropriate intervals, creating the rhythm of the world ends with use battles. Once I get pulled into that rhythm, I love the mad battle system. The upbeat, up-tempo music is a wonderful match for the game. I often tap my feet to it while playing. Couple all that with a great anime art style, and the end result is my favorite DS game. P.S. Thanks to whoever decided to map the D-pad controls to the face buttons. The game would have completely been unplayable for us lefties otherwise. Also, if you reach the end, play another day. It's a wonderful slice of silly post-game content. Uh, so yeah, um, Colin Alonso there mentioned um, the art and the music, which is what I want to go to next. Um, but any other things that you all wanted to bring up about the gameplay specifically before we do that? So... The visuals, as <laughs> I, I don't think that it would be a surprise to anyone at this point to say that this game is anime. Uh, it is extremely anime. It uh, has a lot of uh, Nomura, uh, Tetsuya Nomura type stylings. Um, it looks a lot like Kingdom Hearts. It looks a lot like Final Fantasy because, as we mentioned beforehand, a lot of the same people are involved, so they are bringing their influences with them, which is fine. I love that art style, and um, if if you if that is not an art style that you like at all, then maybe this game isn't for you because it is very style-heavy. Um, we've talked some about the pin design and the brand system, um, but what I think is cool about that also, uh, besides its uh, gameplay mechanic, uh, implications is that the pins themselves, uh, as well as a lot of the um, kind of things that you will uh, equip just as clothing or, or other accessories, um, they have a very distinct visual style. Like you can tell that these are from different types of designers mm -hmm. or brands or whatever just by looking at them. It, like you don't always have to, even if they had taken away the, um, the, the bit that tells you which brand this is from, you would be able to tell and to, you know, e even if you didn't recognize the, the name of the brand specifically, you would be able to like group specific uh, group um, separate types of pin together by the way that they looked. It's, it's a consistent uh, thing that I think they did very well with. It, it was refreshing in a way to see a vision committed to in that way. Um, when it came to both the pins and for the brands of clothing, like like when I first, it, it takes a second to kind of wrap your head around how all the branding and things work, and they don't do a fantastic job of letting you know how it all works. Um, there's a couple story missions that you have to do that that kind of explain it. There's a couple doors you have to get through where um, some of the Reapers are telling you, you have to be wearing all of this brand of clothing, or you have to have this brand be the most popular in this area or whatever. So it forces you to engage in that way. But when you go into the shops, it can be like legitimately overwhelming when you're going through what different mm -hmm. brands are there, all the different clothings, the accessories, what, what accessories can I, can I wear? I can't wear a backpack and sunglasses together. Or I can if I take off my shoes. Like if it's like you know, there's this weird, these weird systems that you you kind of have to get a feel for. But once you get a feel for it, like that system is deep and yeah. and really complex, and you can tailor the style of your character, and you can tailor your specific buffs and resistances and things like that. Like in in such a way that it's 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 kind of kind of left me a little dumbstruck in some cases being like i'm not quite sure what to do here but then just by kind of diving in and tinkering with it you kind of start to figure some stuff out yeah like uh, much like the the pins the way it incentivize you incentivizes you to kind of try out different clothing brands and um build your character in different ways like i'm so in in most rp rpgs I'm so DPS focused. I'm just all about how much damage I can do at any given time. That's all I care about. 
and just like getting a flavor of like this is what it feels like to be a bit more tanky or you know just like um changing like having a system that changes that up but like considering like like thinking about it in terms of like fashion like because fashion is just like something games are it's not something that's explored in games thematically at all. Like you, like I, I love hearing stories about like the dishonored games where they actually kind of brought in people who understand like clothes design and fashion design and, and that helped in, inform the kind of aesthetic of that game. But like integrating like the aesthetics of fashion with a gameplay system and understanding how all these brands into interact with each other is just really interesting and novel if i understand correctly um and this is something that i kind of looked at after the fact um but the there are 13 brands and um they are based on uh mostly uh the zodiac signs the um oh okay the yeah so like if you and they're not all super obvious but like there's um i'm looking at a list right now so you've got like uh tiger punks you have la pan angelique which is the rabbit you know you have dragon couture they all have like an animal associated with them so they they uh map those to the uh the zodiac signs which is pretty cool and and they didn't really have to they could have just slapped the the brand label on a random association of things but what they actually did was to for each uh brand type uh they kind of had a a specific aesthetic uh, uh, and you don't see equipped things on your characters but you do get kind of the little um uh little pixel art representations in your um uh, in in your uh, equipment screens so like you can kind of get what they're supposed to be and the descriptions more than anything uh, of the different items that you are equipping uh really drive that home like um for the the tiger punks that that i mentioned that one pretty obviously is like punk stuff you know uh the the um the lapan angelique is like kind of very frilly and girly and uh, you know just uh, kind of gothic type stuff um there, there is one called hip snake which is literally <laughs> hip stuff you know it's it's supposed to be and you know it's there are some that are super fancy there are some that are kind of preppy but it all kind of hangs together like you wouldn't just see a bunch of um completely gothic and you know black leather and frills and stuff uh alongside like very um polo shirts and you know little uh bags that uh, that might be carried by a character you know, for for like a school thing or whatever you, you wouldn't see those together um under the same brand you might see them in the same store sometimes but uh yeah it's i i thought that that was kind of neat like it's it's a little detail that they didn't really have to do uh but i i i like that it uh it ties into what they um what they're kind of going for with the extremely stylized feel of of the game what brand are the chaps uh i believe those were tiger punks okay um yeah okay i i'm, I'm sorry that, that was yeah, I'm pre- important i'm pretty sure sorry. i'm pretty yeah. sure that they no it yeah. is yes i the I, most important yeah. as far as i'm concerned i want to know um and some of them and we i, I think we briefly mentioned the uh, the bravery stat um which you i think you can only raise by um there's a whole other subsystem uh where you eat food um and 
the, the way that you do that is you have a certain number of food slots per day, uh, food blocks, I guess, um, and things that you uh, put in the food slot <laughs> Which this sounds so stupid. <laughs> uh, the, the things that you put in the food slot will take up a certain number of those blocks, depending on what they are. And then, as you fight battles, you digest these foods, and once you're done, you um, you gain a stat bonus. Um, I, I think that that is the only way to raise your bravery. Uh, you can raise other stats as well, but yeah. uh, bravery affects what kind of equipment you can wear. Like some of the stuff. Uh, you start out with a relatively low bravery, and so the things that you can wear uh, are are portrayed as pretty basic, like you know t-shirts and and jeans and that kind of thing. You know that that you uh, that you probably in real life would not need a high level of bravery to actually wear. Once you get to the stuff that's like you know the the gothic frilly head pieces and the uh, and the the chaps, yes, uh, required pretty high bravery. Um, there are leather shorts. Um, there are you know different types of jewelry. Um, it's 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 almost overwhelming. But uh, the the higher your bravery is, the more extreme. Uh, if you want to call it that, I guess, um, the, the more extreme things that you can wear and the better stat bonuses that you will usually get from wearing those, um, those more um, uh, kind of out of the way and, and um, standout types of, of pieces. Um, uh, there, was, there was a particular food item that I remember that increased bravery and it was some form of ice cream. I remember just yes. getting an ice cream that, that increased my bravery. And that all I could think about was that explains why I am so brave in the real world. Yeah, yeah. Because of all the ice cream. <laughs> that I because of all the ice cream, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah. Nothing, nothing, um, you know, revs me up to fight tribal tattoo frogs, like just drowning <laughs> in better Jerry's. Um <laughs> I ate some hot dogs before uh, this podcast, so my my attack is way up. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna punch my computer. No, I'm not gonna do that. Um, yeah, but I, that's I, I really like the brand system because it it's 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 it could have been a throwaway thing. Like it did not have to be this in depth, and and the fact that they did it, uh, and you could get way deeper into it than than even I did. Um, but uh, I, I'm I, I thought it was pretty cool. So um, the visuals and the audio, I feel like, make a pretty uh, complete package here. Um, Brian, I think that you were the one who, um, after uh, playing, after starting to play the game, said something uh, probably on the forum or maybe on Twitter about um, why did nobody tell me the music for this game slaps so hard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, you yeah. want to talk about the music? You want to start us off? Yeah, it just... It took me, it just took me by surprise in such a way like we we digest a lot of video games obviously and and you hear a lot of pieces of music and a lot of memorable pieces of music some some that are forgetful but like a video game that that focuses on a lot of vocalized music is not that doesn't happen that often first of all and then to be this kind of like let me tell you about Persona. Oh yeah, well exactly. That so <laughs> I, I immediately so when I started listening to the soundtrack for this game and started playing it, it immediately reminded me of Persona. But this game just does not stop <laughs> with the. I mean, it's just like it's just song after song after song, and like it, of all these lyrics that like you know kind of make sense but don't make a lot of sense. But I don't care because it, they just suit the feel so much of the world and and I think you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about how the the visual style matches the music like. Like this feels like a 
like it, like the vision was just so well realized for the the tone they wanted to set. Yeah, and it just it just hits it just hits it so so well. I've listened to the soundtrack. I mean, essentially on repeat since I've finished the game, and and I've got a bunch of different favorites. But it's just it's just so it's just so good, and it's I think one of the reasons it's so good is because a lot of it is very cheesy, but just in the right way. Oh yeah. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, it just it, it it just it just swings for the fences with every track, and I, it, there's very few that don't work for me. I I, I am a, a big fan of the soundtrack. Y- yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, I I pretty much agree with everything you just said. Um, uh, calling is like one of those songs yeah. that just creeps into my brain and find myself humming while I'm doing the dishes every now and then it's <laughs> it's there's just so many earworms in here i think um the soundtrack in isolation i think is is just incredible but i i do think it's important to emphasize just how well integrated everything is in terms of design like just the the opening movie um uh the which yeah. is matched with um uh, the 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 song Twister is just so brilliantly edited, compu- like just directed, and 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 the composition of the images matched with the music, it's just masterful. Um, and like yeah, like if there's anything that I walk away from this game thinking, like they just nailed it, is just the the aesthetics of it, like for, like in every kind of like area both like sound visuals all of it i just think it's so cohesive and all of a piece um and it's just incredibly memorable i yeah i i mean take take this take this as you will because it's both me and josh on the same podcast so of course we're going to talk about persona but um it it really does have a similar vibe to me and i guess um did, did persona 4 come out in 2008 also, is that am I? Uh, it came out in two thousand eight in the US. It came out in two thousand nine in the UK. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, this was either way. I mean, for per, for the US release, you know, this would have been the same year yeah. and uh, UK slightly after. Um, I mean, it just especially, and I think this has only in the Persona series gotten more pronounced as the games have gone on but that's another example that i can think of where the style is just very cohesive like Mm -hmm. everything kind of fits together and it feels like it fits together like it doesn't feel like you know you had one person or one set of people working on the music and you had another set of people in complete isolation from them working on the the visual style like it all just it all feels like it goes together to me uh yeah, it I, transcends somebody... <laughs> too. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I was just gonna say, like it, it. I made the Persona comparison too, and I was playing the game obviously a lot later. Um, but I had played a ton of Persona Five this year, and it and and it was even that thing like like uh, that first time that I played Persona Five, and I hit the menu button, and mm-hmm. the menu with all the animations and the graphic and the font all like all all saying cohesive with the way the things felt in the world and everything like like that kind of blew me away. And here I play this game that's a remaster of a game that came out a decade ago. And I'm like, wow, this whole the, everything about this. I hit the map button, even like the way the pin is jutting out of the map and the way that the, the, the fonts around the side and these little tribal accents like all over the place. Like it just every single piece of interacting with that game just felt like it came out of one person's brain. You know what I mean? Like, it could, like one person yeah. had this idea for how everything had to look. And obviously that's not the case. Like you said, there's a, a bunch of people working on this game. It's just that that 
that centralized theme just never quits in this game and it's it's really really fun yeah i agree with that it is it is extremely stylized in a way that uh i i, I guess probably won't work for everybody but it definitely works for me uh, I, I really, uh, I really like how everything comes together, and I'm going to have a difficult time choosing tracks. To I, I, I um, uh, Brian, you mentioned that you'd been listening to uh, the the soundtracks since you finished the game. I um, yesterday while I was working, I had a playlist on um, uh, on just YouTube uh, in the background while I was working, and uh, some some of them I didn't even notice. Like they had those um, kind of huge. 15 minute loops of you know one one song or whatever and and normally i would probably have an issue with that um like i I wouldn't but here it it didn't that that's not what happened i uh it was it was fine i um i i didn't even notice until like 10 minutes later i would come back and think oh well i'm i'm still i'm still kind of jamming along to the same thing um so i uh yeah it i i i really this is the kind of music that I would never think really to listen to on its own, but every time I actually get into it via a game or or whatever, uh, usually it's a game, then it becomes one of those soundtracks that I just listen to all the yeah, time. Yeah. So I, I think that that means I should probably just be listening to more of this type of music in general because this has been happening since, you know, Persona 3. So um, I, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that um, that I'm just full-on japanese I, I don't even know what you'd call it it's 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 not punk really it's not well i guess it's kind of rap hip-hop sort of but yeah. but not quite it's yeah. it's yeah it's 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 a uh it's a very distinct style but i don't know what you call it how's that yeah i i, <laughs> those, I, I mean those some of those bass lines are just like mesmerizing in those songs i mean yeah. just like it just i listen to it like like every time i would like from the first play session, like I'd, I'd have to play this game with headphones in. Just, I, uh, I felt like I wasn't doing myself justice, not listening to everything, you know, as, as well as I could. I, I, I credit um, the kind of one, two punch of persona free and, and this game in my early twenties of getting me out of my kind of teenage um, stagnant music taste. I was very much kind of that typical white straight guy just listening to kind of rock music and that's all I listen to and this and Persona 3 having the kind of more hip-hop inspired you know music started getting me to broaden my horizons and got me to you know start listening to people like Kendrick Lamar and and Michelle Monet and stuff like that so like uh, like you know I I I do think it's like, like as cheesy as this music can be, I think it speaks to, it speaks to the quality of it that like, and, and it speaks to the importance of kind of games like looking outside of the usual kind of John Williams style orchestral sweeps or kind of, you know, the, the more standard soundtracks that we're used to broadening the, the, the kind of spectrum of what's acceptable for you know you know soundtracks of games and and being adventurous because like it 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 opened up you know for for me in my early 20s it opened up genres for me that I just wouldn't have listened to otherwise so mm, yeah. i i do think it's i do think i want to encourage like i this is starting to happen with games i'm i'm saying this like um 
that like, there isn't variety in, in game soundtrack. There absolutely is. But back when this game came out, it did feel like everything was kind of in the Hans Zimmer, John Williams singularity. And it was just so refreshing to have something be so markedly different. Well, even in Square's catalog, I mean, uh, up until uh, there's some stuff that happened with Final Fantasy 13 that I'm not sure I want to talk about. But, um, you know, it's up until like 13 and 15, really, it was mostly pretty typical, you know, sweeping dramatic. And it was it's good music. Like, I, I love the Final Fantasy soundtracks, but it's not it doesn't really step outside of that box. Right. Yeah. Um, and and it, I'm not saying that all games have to do that, certainly. Uh, but but yeah, I agree that I, I really enjoy it when a game like this does something like that, especially when it fits so well with the rest of the uh, of the whole kind of complete package there. And again, not to say the same things over and over again, but it's a risky choice. You know what I mean? They could have yeah. just had a had a had a soundtrack that didn't really say anything but was safe. And this is not that at all. This is this is a soundtrack that like you're either going to love this music or it's going to drive you bananas. And like you know, <laughs> it, I just happen to be on the side of the, someone that loved it, and I, I just can't get enough of it. It 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 makes it's it's without a doubt the most memorable aspect of this game for me. Yeah, I I agree with that. So I want to before we start wrapping up, I have a few pieces of correspondence more to read uh, from the forum. Uh, this first one is from Blue Weasel Breath, who says, "I'm sad to say this one didn't click with me. I had heard it described as a unique must-play JRPG. As a fan of the genre, I borrowed it from Gamefly, Gamefly to play on Switch, and was unfortunately a bit cold on it. I think my first barrier was that I personally didn't find the setting to be that compelling. It's a shame. I sincerely wish I found contemporary Japanese urban youth culture interesting, but it just doesn't push my buttons. I can." see how it could be a great hook for others though and i always appreciate modern day settings and rpgs so i recognize this one as a strong case of it's not you it's me while the game's art looked great the sparse animation and stiff character movement made it feel a bit chintzier than i had expected while the interactive combat made me feel very hands-on with the game world the traversal had a feel of limited interactivity for me somehow like i was moving a paper doll across a passive backdrop rather than moving a character wading through a real interactive environment ironic given how immersive the environments could potentially have been given their basis in real locations they also made the unusual decision to keep some of the game icons in their original resolution from the ds which was vis visually jarring <laughs> that is true <laughs> i forgot about <laughs> yeah. that yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I kind of liked it, but yes, I, yeah, I definitely me too. understand. <laughs> Um, two main things kept pulling me out of the experience. Firstly, I found the touch controls to be unreliable on the Switch. Well, yes, we've we've definitely gone into that. Uh, the original DS style of combat probably worked better. I found myself slashing and tapping wildly to execute particular attacks strategically, only to have the various attacks activate haphazardly with a different attack than I had intended or not at all. Secondly, and I say this as someone who enjoys dialogue in a game, the amount of text here really should have been cut in half. The dialogue itself is fine, but the amount of redundant inner monologue is egregious. Of course, some of it is critical to character development, but when Neku finds a character obnoxious and answers in a guarded and peevish tone, implicitly conveying his annoyance and his wish to be left alone, it's not necessary to have him also think, she's so annoying, why doesn't she leave me alone? <laughs> I wish the writers had trusted in their own characterization and the player's intuition a bit more. I also have infuriating memories of trying to activate a dog statue early on and knowing exactly what I needed to do, but going back and forth for 20 minutes, talking to everybody and swiping and tapping like a fool, trying to figure out how to trigger the next action, but getting insufficient feedback from the dialogue boxes. I can't say for sure that this is emblematic of the entire game. It could have been a fluke, but the memory of it badly colors one of the first sections of non-combat, non-dialogue gameplay of this game when I look back on it. In the end, I returned the game early, less than a quarter of the way through. I could tell the story was beginning to pick up, so I intended to come back to it at some point, but with all the games out there, I'm not sure if I will. 
Um, so yeah, I, I I really wanted to include this because it I, I feel like this is really fair. Like I I a lot of this is um obviously well not even contra our opinions necessarily. Um, it's just that I I can definitely see how some of the things that we see as as barriers or as um, slight deficiencies can really get in the way, especially if maybe this is not your preferred genre, genre to begin with. Um, but I felt like this was a really uh, kind of eloquent explanation of the other half because I figured that we were all probably going to be pretty positive on it. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, I his uh, paragraph, or I shouldn't say his, I'm not sure if it's a male or female, um, if Blue Weasel Breath is male or female, but their um, paragraph about the dialogue um, is is really interesting because I completely agree with that assessment. Like, there's nothing mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong at all about what was written there. I just happen to find that type of thing endearing in a JRPG, like mm-hmm. the the inner monologue that, that almost completely doubles what was just said out loud between characters, or like the yeah. over explanation of like a of like this is where you need to go next, or this is what you need to do next. Like, I find that is just kind of part of the genre so like it makes me smile when stuff happens like that but i could totally see it be, be somebody being like yeah we get it we know what to do next and for me i'm just kind of grinning like an idiot because i'm like ah this is how these games are you know what i mean like it's just um we kind I, of it, uh yeah. we kind of touched on this but i mean it's this game is uh, it is unique in a lot of ways but also it is far from being immune to some of the anime tropes that that people might laugh at or or worst case be really annoyed by um you know like the over explanations like the um the character who drops into the middle of everything with amnesia like you know it it's like the the perky girl sidekick who you know and the the doofy male sidekick yeah you know, it's 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 there's a lot here that i think could rub some people the wrong way and i I, I think that the reason probably that this game had the kind of high scores that it did is that it mo- it, it, it is not shy about telling you that that's where it's going. Um, so I think that a lot of the people who played and liked this game are people who were predisposed to like it in the first place, if that makes sense. Like, uh, not a whole lot of people picked up this game and and had a really bad time with it because they don't like anime like if you don't like anime and i'm not saying that this is the case uh with with blue weasel breath here uh, if you don't if, if this is not your genre to begin with then you probably didn't even pick the game up and if you did then you might even be more inclined to be like okay well maybe i didn't like this but you know it's just it is more me than it is anything else so i i I think that that probably since this was not really intended to be like some huge blockbuster uh, mass appeal thing i think that probably affected the uh the the scores and kind of the general impressions that are out there for the game as well all right joe bobonobo from the forum says a friend of mine recommended this to me as he knew I was a DS owner who loved his JRPGs. This being a new series from Square Enix and being set in modern day Tokyo did make this pretty appealing, so I was hard, it was not hard to convince me to give it a go. While this game had some cliches, such as a main character losing his memory <laughs> and being a mopey little git, its unique settings, aesthetics, and combat kept me glued to my DS for weeks. The combat utilizing both screens and controlling both character attacks with the touchscreen and directional pads simultaneously definitely takes some getting used to, but once you go over that hurdle, it really becomes quite compelling. The fact that battles are not random certainly helps endear me to this title even more. Wearing certain brands in each district that are currently fashionable is a clever approach to handling equipment, ensuring you hold on to any clothes you have collected so your stats are always in top condition for battling. 
Rising, one of the more unique JRPGs to come out on the DS, and one I would definitely recommend to fans of the genre wanting something a little off the beaten path. And no more Spiros from the forum uh, will bring us home here saying it is frustrating that there will likely never be a definitive version of The World Ends With You. From a gameplay perspective, it feels unfair to compare the original DS version with its mobile and Switch counterparts because they're such different beasts, but there was undoubtedly more love put into the former. The game emphasizes the importance of multiple layers of existence, so having that element portrayed with two different screens is the clearest way of doing so. It's not an easy setup to learn with the temptations to focus on one screen or adjust the difficulty felt throughout the game, but learning how to use each partner effectively, as well as finding a set of pins that best matches your playstyle, or just finding one that can break the game, is rewarding in a way that other versions can't match. But The World Ends With You is just as much a game about the aesthetics as it is the gameplay, and versions such as Final Remix are superior whether you're looking at the quality of the graphics or the amount of music provided by Takeharu Ishimoto. In a perfect world, there would have been a version released for the 3DS or the Wii U, where both of these fundamental elements could work together in as much sync as Neku and his partner. If the promised new seven days that have been teased for the past half decade or so come in the form of a sequel, I'm worried that the combat will lack the identity everything surrounding it has if it isn't retooled in a major way. Completely off topic, but applause for whoever had this be issue 428, which can be phonetically read as Shibuya in Japanese. I thought that was interesting little tidbit there. Um... You know, it's yes. it's interesting. I wonder if they hey, there's no way to know. This is pure speculation, which is my forte, of course. Um, but they <laughs> like it'd be interesting to know if this was originally meant to be a 3DS um, remaster, but Nintendo was kind of like, hey, no, we're you know we're we're moving on to the next thing. You know, it because because it does seem like there are significant compromises made there from a control mm. perspective. So I wonder if that was something that was like pitched but didn't you know necessarily make it through. That's that's kind of that's interesting. It is kind of a shame that none of us really got into the the iOS or Android versions yeah. because I, I would imagine that it's closer to the Switch version just by virtue of not having two screens. Um, but uh, I, I'd be interested to know if there are any uh, major differences or if the Switch version is just kind of a port of the mobile versions right. effectively. Yeah. Um, but thank you anyway to uh, all of our correspondents. Uh, had some really nice stuff this time around. Um, and uh, you too can contribute to any of our upcoming issues if you go over to canamrinse.com slash forum. You can also email us canamrinse at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us. Uh, it is at canamrinse. And uh, notably, we put out a call for three word reviews. And uh, this is what our friends on Twitter have given us. Scully says, both screens? Really? Brendan Agnew says, twisty, delightful nonsense. Dan says, stylish emo mashing. Robin Enrico says, buy screen protector. Captain Deadeyes Dre says, hazy summer soundtrack. Leroy Lemon says, groovy brain division. Porg of Prophecy says, so Zeta good. Yeah, if I have to listen to that guy say Zeta <laughs> one more time, though. Like, come on. <laughs> uh, gosh. So usually we like to do our summaries in order of uh, least positive to most positive, but I feel like we're all kind of on a similar level here. Um, Josh, start start with the summary, please. <laughs> um, so uh, it's it's weird because I really love the DS version, um, but it's the least accessible version of the game that's out there currently. I suppose I, if if you absolutely like you don't own a DS, you don't own a 3DS, and, and most importantly, you're not willing to to pay whatever price. Maybe it's like I don't know, 
60 70 dollars i haven't checked um to buy the ds cart if you're not willing to do that i suppose the switch and the the ios android version is a good enough compromise but i just feel like the the fem- the theming of the game is so tied to the the format in which it is played um and uh a lot of my love for this game comes from that the the consistency of everything from the game design to the the music to the visuals to the the storytelling all kind of tying back to this core core idea um and i just don't think the other versions have that uh, i mean given given brian's experience i i i I I can see that it's clearly possible to have a positive takeaway um, from those versions, but um, for me at least, I feel like I've I've experienced the ideal, and I I can't I can't go back to I can't go back to the Switch and the uh, iOS and Android version. Um, but what what's here, I think, is really like amongst Square Enix's catalog is really unique and bold and and. It's uh, as Brian said, um, it swings for the fences. It doesn't hit every ball it goes for, but I think the the ones that it does, it does it beautifully. Um, and I, you know, I want to give mention because um, we we uh, we touched on the characters, but um, I r- was really really moved by um, the the storyline between um, uh, Shiki and her best friend. And um, the the whole kind of so like um, their her jealousy towards her friend and her want to be like her friend and that ultimately like her ultimately taking up the image of her friend in the game and the the way that the 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 story explored that and then ultimately at, at the end where everyone gets reunited in the real world you get to see the real her. I found that really compelling um and that whole self-deprecation that kind of conflict of identity is something that we see a lot in the Persona series but not something you see a lot in the uh, JRPGs that um that Square that Square put out uh, and it's and it's just so exciting and 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 I'm just so glad that a game like this exists more than anything else. So yes, I I I, I love this game and I highly recommend it. Awesome, thank you, Josh. Uh, Brian, so you've you've played the uh, the Switch version. Uh, are are you considering the DS version, or are you happy with what you've played so far? I, I really am, and and I. Probably couldn't have said that before this conversation. I know that we had had conversations, you know, over text, but um, hearing not only the the great correspondence we received, but also hearing your both of your opinions on it make make me do make me think that it would be worth checking out. Um, I th- this is just a, a game of two experiences for me because I there's so much about this game I love. Obviously, I gushed about the style and the art and the music and and the story's bonkers in a lot of ways. But um, if you're it won't be anything new to anybody who's familiar with the genre. If this was the first JRPG you'd ever played, you'd probably walk away wondering what just happened, you know, but, but this is the, the type of convoluted story they tell. It's, it's a typical storytelling um, process that happens throughout JRPGs. But the thing I really like about this one is that it takes place in, in semi-modern times. It takes place in, 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 in in, kind of like a alternate reality of a real place. Um, 
it does things just a little bit differently. The way that you kind of the way that you kind of retravel Shibuya a few times throughout the course of the game, you get really well versed in the layout of the city. You know where you're going when they say, "Hey, you got to go to this building," or "You got to go to um to, to to this alley." Like by the end of the game, I just found myself just going there. I didn't bring up a map. I didn't you know. I just knew how to get get around. And and I think that that experience in and of itself is just really cool, really well realized. Um, the controls on the Switch are a bummer. There's no other way to say it. And and it it was uh, battling was my least favorite part of the game, and and it was because of poor controls. Um, so if any of this seems interesting to anybody, I would suggest play the game however you can. Um, but I'm really looking forward to going back and checking out the the DS version because. Because what was in this Switch version was enough to endear me, enough to this story, to these characters. They have the anime coming up that that Leah mentioned, like to to where I would like to revisit this world, this Shibuya, this concept again in the future. And I think I'd like to revisit it the way it was originally intended to be played. So, um, so yeah, it's a it's a total recommend for me. This game this game is wild in more ways than one, and and it's it's just no matter what roadblocks I hit. I was always kind of left smiling after a play session. So, um, yeah, total recommend. So um, this was my uh, request, my choice for this volume of Kingdom Rents. Um, so I think you can probably figure out how I feel about the game. Um, so I want to start out my, uh, my little conclusion here uh, with two fun facts. One is that I just looked up the DS version of The World Ends With You on Amazon, and you can get a brand new copy for thirty-four seventy-five dollars uh, as of time of recording. All so, right, I'll see y'all so later. It's not that bad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's actually pretty good. Um, so uh, that, that's one. The other thing uh, that I found interesting is, um, so the title of The World Ends With You in, uh, in Japanese is actually It's a Wonderful World. Um, and I think that it's, it's possible that there's no connection between that and the, uh, kind of mid 20th century Christmas film, It's a Wonderful Life, which is largely about a, uh, a man who is dissatisfied with everything and, uh, contemplating committing suicide and then is shown how connections can be a, a great thing and and can make your life worth living um it's possible that there's no connection there but i don't think that that's very likely i i think that um there's a lot to this game i think that they have taken their influences very seriously and have really melded them together into something that feels complete and feels uh, we've we've overused the word cohesive but i'm going to use it again uh, it feels cohesive it feels all of a piece and uh i am very pleased that uh that i got the chance to play it again uh the switch version is not the ideal version i don't think but i do agree with what brian said if if that is how uh you are able to play the game then yeah absolutely i don't i don't think that it ruins the experience as a whole uh to have the i would say maybe don't try to use the joy cons because that was probably a mistake but um i i, I would say that even though the controls on the Switch version are uh, a bit of a bummer, um, 
it's still worth it. Uh, I if if you have the capability to play this game on a, a DS or a 3DS or whatever, um, apparently it's relatively available. So uh, that's that's something that you can do, and I and I do recommend if this appeals to you at all, uh, if this is your type of thing, and you're looking for something a little bit different, uh, this is that, and it uh, I I I am of I am of a mind to. Um, go into games like this even if they're not very good just to see what kind of weird stuff a development team can come up with um but i didn't have to do that kind of compromise here because i feel that the game really stood up to the ideas that were in it um so yes hearty recommend from all three of us uh that's uh that's that's a that's a winner right there and i i feel good about about uh having recorded uh, uh some thoughts about this particular game it just then remains for me, Leah, to thank Josh and Brian, as well as all of our wonderful correspondents, our editor, Jay, and of course, you, the listener. So next time in issue 429, it's a predecessor to Dark Souls. Take a drink. It is The Mark of Cree 